Acts chapter 6, verse 8, through chapter 7, verse 53. And Stephen, full of grace and power, was doing great wonders and signs among the people. Then some of those who belonged to the synagogue of the freedmen, as it was called, and of the Cyrenians, and of the Alexandrians, and of those from Cilicia and Asia, rose up and disputed with Stephen. But they could not withstand the wisdom and the spirit with which he was speaking. Then they secretly instigated men who said, We have heard him speak blasphemous words against Moses and God. And they stirred up the people and the elders and the scribes, and they came upon him and seized him and brought him before the council. And they set up false witnesses who said, This man never ceases to speak words against this holy place and the law. For we have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and will change the customs that Moses delivered to us. And gazing at him, all who sat in the council saw that his face was like the face of an angel. And the high priest said, Are these things so? And Stephen said, Brothers and fathers, hear me. The God of glory appeared to our father Abraham when he was in Mesopotamia, before he lived in Haran, and said to him, Go out from your land and from your kindred, and go into the land that I will show you. And he gave him the covenant of circumcision. And so Abraham became the father of Isaac, and the circumcised him on the eighth day. And Isaac became the father of Jacob, and Jacob of the twelve patriarchs. Now there came a famine throughout all Egypt, and Canaan, and great affliction, and our fathers could find no food. But when Jacob heard that there was grain in Egypt, he sent out our fathers on their first visit. And on the second visit, Joseph made himself known to his brothers, and Joseph's family became known to Pharaoh. But as the time of the promise drew near, which God had granted to Abraham, the people increased and multiplied in Egypt, until there arose over Egypt another king who did not know Joseph. He dealt shrewdly with our race and forced our fathers to expose their infants so that they would not be kept alive. At this time, Moses was born, and he was beautiful in God's sight, and he was brought up for three months in his father's house. And when he was exposed, Pharaoh's daughter adopted him and brought him up as her own son. And Moses was instructed in all the wisdom of the Egyptians, and he was mighty in his words and deeds. And when he was 40 years old, it came into his heart to visit his brothers, the children of Israel. And seeing one of them being wronged, he defended the oppressed man and avenged him by striking down the Egyptian. He supposed that his brothers would understand that God was giving them salvation by his hand, but they did not understand. At this retort, Moses fled and became an exile in the land of Midian where he became the father of two sons. Now when 40 years had passed, an angel appeared to him in the wilderness of Mount Sinai, in a flame of fire in a bush. When Moses saw it, he was amazed at the sight, and as he drew near to look, there came the voice of the Lord. I am the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, and of Isaac, and of Jacob. And Moses trembled and did not dare to look, then the Lord said to him, Take off the sandals from your feet, for the place where you are standing is holy ground. I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt, and have heard their groaning, and I have come down to deliver them. And now come, I will send you to Egypt. This Moses, whom they rejected, saying, Who made you a ruler and a judge? This man God sent as both ruler and redeemer by the hand of the angel, who appeared to him in the bush. This man led them out, performing wonders and signs in Egypt, and at the Red Sea, and in the wilderness for forty years. This is the Moses who said to the Israelites, God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brothers. This is the one who was in the congregation in the wilderness with the angel who spoke to him at Mount Sinai, and with our fathers. 
He received living oracles to give to us. Our fathers refused to obey him, but thrust him aside, and in their hearts they turned to Egypt, saying to Aaron, Make for us gods who will go before us. As for this Moses who led us out from the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. And they made a calf in those days and offered a sacrifice to the idol and were rejoicing in the works of their hands. But God turned away and gave them over to the worship, the host of heaven, as it is written in the book of the prophets. So it was until the days of David, who found favor in the sight of God and asked to find a dwelling place for the God of Jacob. But it was Solomon who built a house for him. Yet the Most High does not dwell in houses made by hands, as the prophet says. Heaven is my throne, and the earth is my footstool. What kind of house will you build for me, says the Lord? Or what is the place of my rest? Did not my hand make all these things? Good morning. My name's John Park. I'm one of the elders here, and I'm getting an opportunity to preach today. I actually uh, got to choose from a menu when we looked at the act schedule. And as Eric said, this is a long section of scripture. I'm kind of a quiet guy, so I thought, well, I ought to be able to come up with enough words from from that long a text. Uh, And it's Memorial Day, people be in a good mood, they got a three-day weekend, what what can go wrong? But uh, the other reason is this is a really interesting story. how many of you are fans of some sort of TV court show? Law and order. Okay, Law and Order. I, I'll go way back. People's Court was one of the first reality shows, kind of like Judge Judy. That's showing my age. But what are some others? Just, just yell them out. Night Court. Night Court was funny, yeah. But our, our culture, what was that? Perry Mason. Perry Mason. Matlock. There's all kinds of them. Countless TV shows and movies are centered on our legal system and courtroom scenes. The verbal presentations of both prosecution and defense, they make for good theater. And it's really interesting. How clever can they talk? Can they get the accused out of this when they're in a bind? Today's text takes us into a a trial of an early church leader, Stephen. And in his defense argument... Stephen is pleading through the use of Scripture, through the Old Testament Scriptures, he's pleading for the Jewish leaders to see that Jesus has fulfilled the Old Covenant and has brought in the New Covenant. It's a long section of text, and as Eric said, we didn't listen to all of it, but I'm going to pray, and then we're going to go through some, some teaching here, okay? Father, we, we pray that you give us understanding of what we read this morning. We pray that you would open our hearts to what Luke has recorded, that we would see more of your glory, and we would see application for our lives yet today, as it is revealed to us through the power of the Holy Spirit. Amen. So we pick up today's reading with more detail about Stephen. He was introduced last week in the early part of chapter 6. He's one of seven men chosen to help serve the Hellenists. The Hellenists were not getting taken care of properly with food, particularly the widows. And Stephen is a Hellenist himself. He's a, that's a Greek-speaking Jew. And the first verse of our text today told us he's doing great signs and wonders. We're not told what those are. Likely, he's healing people. And he's, he's displaying other acts that can only de- be described as a miracle and with power from God. Luke has previously, in his writing, only credited signs and wonders to Jesus. He talked about Jesus doing signs and wonders. And the apostles, the early church, as it started, they're doing signs and wonders. In verse 5 of chapter 6, which is just preceding what we read... We're told that Stephen is a man of faith and full of the Holy Spirit. So we're seeing the Holy Spirit move as the church grows. It's moved beyond, empowerment has moved beyond the 12 now. Stephen's one of the early believers. So empowered by the the Holy Spirit, he's serving his community. 
and he's proclaiming that Jesus is Messiah. He's given a chance to serve their physical needs. He's in charge of distributing food. He's probably, there's probably some money he's in charge, making sure that that's distributed fairly. Yet he doesn't miss the opportunity to serve their spiritual needs. And that's a wonderful example to us as followers of Jesus yet today. So two examples where he exhibits loves of, love of others. One is he cared for the physical needs of others. Two, he cared for the spiritual needs of others. And they go hand in hand. One helps the other. It would seem that his acts of mercy and charity would be welcomed by everyone. And the freedmen don't seem to have any dispute with his healing people. But they took offense at the message that he proclaimed. The message that Jesus had fulfilled the gospel. His care for their spiritual needs, his proclamation of Jesus as Messiah, that message stirs up angst. This group gets angry. He, he encounters opposition to what he is saying. Look at verse 9, and we read about the synagogue of the freedmen. These people disputing with Stephen, they're Greek. They're Greek-speaking Jews, just like he is. And they're people who had been slaves in their own countries. Now they've been freed, and they're back in Israel. They're back in their homeland. They, re- they return home, and they form their own synagogue, the synagogue of the freedmen. So you can imagine they likely found property and homes and, and lived and built next to one another. They're back in their homeland. They share the same customs, and they form their own church. And the text goes on to include several other groups who are disputing with him. One of those locales mentioned, Cilicia, the C-I-L-I-C-I-A, that's the home area of Tarsus. And we're going to get introduced to a guy named Saul in the coming weeks. That's his home territory. That will be key to remember as we proceed through the book of Acts. So why would these people be combative with Stephen? We, we can speculate they feel threatened. The, the way of life they had grown accustomed to now that they're back in their homeland and they're living the practices of the law and the temple, it's being disturbed now by these Christians. They're talking about Jesus. And in earlier in Acts 6, in fact, it's verse 7, if you want to look at that while, while you're there, it says, a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. So leaders of their own belief system are converting to Christianity. This is disturbing to them. That probably doesn't sit well. These Christians are changing things. They're even recruiting some of our leaders. They're doing acts of charity. This guy's performing miracles. He's probably healed some people in front of them. And he's telling people, Jesus is the Messiah. Messiah. He's fulfilled the law. And they challenge him in public. Maybe they even disrupted one of his sermons. A public debate, a debate breaks out. Look at ver- but look at verse 10. But they could not withstand the wisdom and spirit with which he was speaking. They were no match for Stephen's wisdom or his knowledge. It, this sounds like a mismatch. It's a lopsided contest. The freedmen had no reasonable counters to what Stephen presented, nor could they match his passion because he's filled with the Holy Spirit. They can't find or prove anything wrong in what he is saying, so they start a smear campaign. They bribe people to speak ill of him, to make up lies. People are paid off to do, to do this. That it's a similar way that Jesus was brought harm. There were men, Judas was bribed to point him out and turn against him. So the people from the synagogue of the freedmen dispute what Stephen is teaching. They lose a public debate with him. They pay people to lie about what he said. And now they're going to take legal action. None of those actions work. They're going to take it to a higher level. They take Stephen by force. They lost the debate, so they're going to take him to the high court. Verse 12, 
He's seized, arrested, and brought before the council. And the legal charge is blasphemy. Blasphemy against God and blasphemy against Moses. And these are capital offenses. Capital offenses. Punishment by death. If you're familiar with the gospel story, the life and ministry of Jesus, you will you'll remember he had the same charge against him. He was charged with blasphemy by the religious authorities, the same group. It's in Mark chapter 14, verse 64. So Stephen will have to go to court. He's going to be put on trial. And the text takes us to the courtroom. This court is now in session. Would the accused stand? Let's picture now the courtroom scene as it may have looked in in verse 12. Stephen's brought before the council. This picture might slightly give us an idea of the image. Uh, This this council is made up of religious leaders, high-level attorneys, experts in the law, 70 of them. But likely, it's even more intimidating than with this picture. In in commentaries I read, these authorities were likely seated seated above Stephen, looking down at him. So he's got 70 religious, legal authorities looking down on him, plus the high priest. It may be hard to see here, but the guy in the middle has the ephod representing the 12 tribes. He's the high priest. So they form a semicircle. This doesn't seem like a fair fight. And as it turns out, it's not fair. It's not fair for the 71. Because the one, Stephen, is full of the Holy Spirit. Jesus promised this very thing to his disciples. I'm going to ask you to please turn with me to Luke chapter 12. And we're going to look at verses 11 and 12. This is Jesus speaking in in Luke's other writing. And when they bring you before the synagogues and the rulers and the authorities, do not be anxious how you should defend yourself or what you should say. For the Holy Spirit will teach you in that very hour what you ought to say. So in the courtroom, the charges are laid out. He never ceases to speak words against this holy place. And this holy place is the temple, and he's speaking against the law. And the charges are read. This group of 71's looking down at Stephen, probably with scowls on their faces, you know, expressions of disapproval. Did you ever get sent to the principal's office when, when you were in school? Have that authority looking down at you? If not, ask your, if you're a firstborn, ask your kid brother or sister. They'll tell you what it was like, but... That the looks of disapproval, it's that type of an expression, something from an authority. But what do they see when they look down at him? We look, let's look at verse 15. This is interesting. They, they see that his face was like the face of an angel. What's going on here? Where have we heard this type of depic- depiction in Scripture? There are two places. In Matthew's description of Jesus at the Transfiguration, it's chapter 17, verse 2, it was described that his face shone like the sun, talking about Jesus, a a visible manifestation of God's glory. In Exodus, remember Moses goes to the top of Mount Sinai to receive the Ten Commandments, the law, When he comes down from Mount Sinai, the people of Israel saw him, and behold, his face shone like the sun. Two places we've seen that. So here we have Stephen, a man full of grace and power, on trial before the highest religious leaders of Judaism, and he's accused of blaspheming Moses. And God, in his providence presents a visible manifestation of his glory through Stephen's face. Just as he did with Moses to reveal a glimpse of his glory to the people of Israel at Mount Sinai. Besides the literal enhanced appearance of Stephen's face, in Jewish tradition, catch note of this, 
the, the expression of appearing like an angel is used to denote a countenance that expresses communion with God, a calm serenity and composure. Remember the promise Jesus made in Luke 11 to the disciples we just read, or Luke 12? And when they bring you before the synagogues and the rulers and the authorities, do not be anxious about how you should defend yourself or what you should say. For the Holy Spirit will teach you in that very hour what you ought to say. It says if God is, is visually and vividly telling these persecutors, this is no blasphemer. This is my loyal servant. Just like my loyal servant Moses and my loyal servant Jesus. Is this not a display of the God, uh, patience God has at times that he demonstrates? The religious leaders here, they're hostile to the gospel. They're devoted to the old way. They're trying to defend and promote the temple and the law. They're putting a faithful witness on trial, on trumped-up charges, on lies. And God displays his glory right in front of them. It's as if he's saying, I'll give you one more reason to believe I'm going to give you one more chance to get it. And what a testimony to those attending the trial. There were public people watching this event. So it's not just the 71 and Stephen. There are observers. What a testimony to God's goodness in doing this. So the charges have been announced by the prosecuting attorney, or the high priest in this case. This man never ceases to speak words against this holy place and the law. And now the judge, the high priest, asked the defense to make his case. We go to chapter 7, verse 1. Is this so? Is this so? I think it might serve us to pause here for a second. Just put yourself in Stephen's position as he faces this question. The, the answer that he provides is going to determine his innocence or guilt against charges that carry the death sentence. Blasphemy is a capital offense. That's what he's charged with. If I'm in Stephen's position, my human nature would be, okay, I'm going to start with proclaiming my innocence. I'm going to start to name witnesses who were there who can testify. This is what he said. He didn't blaspheme. That's not what Stephen does. Stephen, full of grace and power, is going to tell them what's so. Game on, Sanhedrin. If this were a TV show court scene, this, is, this starts to be the dramatic turning point in this, what we're reading today. He begins his defense in verse 2. In the speech, he expertly applies a theological term called hermeneutics. It's from the Greek word meaning interpreter. And here's the definition of hermeneutics. And I got a big fancy word here I might stumble on, so bear with me. But it's the study of the methodological principles of interpretation. So in the family worship handout today, uh, we, we define hermeneutics a little further. We provide four tips for biblical interpretation for us. But we're going to walk through Stephen's application of hermeneutics in the text that we read today. So... In the Old Testament, prophets served as enforcer for reminding the people of Israel when covenant had been broken and warning of the consequences of breaking this covenant with God. And the prophets would call people back to repentance. If there was a lawsuit involving the breaking of a covenant, the prophet would often act as prosecuting attorney. And he would build a case... Catch this, he built a case by reviewing the redemptive history of Israel, the redemptive history God provided. And what we read to, in, in Stephen's speech today, this is a top-notch application of hermeneutics and an application of Stephen acting as a prophet. He's a defendant in this trial, 
who in his defense takes on the role of prophet, he flips it where he becomes the prosecuting attorney, just like the Old Testament prophets. So he's building a case of prosecution against this religious hierarchy by going over redemptive history. And he begins with Abraham, who's living in Mesopotamia. That's modern-day Iraq. That's where this Abraham was. So Abraham's living outside of his country, and he's worshiping other gods. He's not believing the God of the Old Testament. And as Stephen starts his defense, he does it by honoring the authority of the court. He stays respectful. Verse 2, he says, brothers and fathers. And then he states what sounds like a plea. Hear me. The God of glory appeared. He's talking about the God of glory appearing to Abraham while he's in modern-day Iraq. This is lesson number one in interpretation. The Jews, these religious authorities, believed that God's glory was confined to their temple, a temple built with human hands. Stephen is reminding them God's glory appeared to Abraham in a foreign land. God's not confined to space. In verses 3 to 8, Stephen summarizes the history of Abraham And he points to this counsel that Abraham's relationship to God was not built on sacred space. It's based on covenant, promise, and faith. God made a covenant with Abraham long before there was a temple that he would bless his offspring and make these people a holy people. One other thing to note, if you look, just glance through verses 3 to 8, look at all the action verbs that are taken by God. God appeared, God instructed, he sent, he promised, he punished, he rescued. Abraham's action is to obey by faith. He's never going to see this promised land that God's telling him about. Hebrews 11 verse 8 tells us that Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to a place Friends, these same action words used by Stephen to summarize the story of Abraham, they apply to the Christian faith today. God appeared in the person of Jesus Christ. He instructed his disciples. He instructs us through the scriptures that he's left for us. He promises a resurrection. This life is not all we're destined for. He will punish sin, and he will rescue those who walk by faith in Christ. The the story of Abraham is foretelling the story of Jesus. Next is Abraham's great-grandson, Joseph. So the covenant is being continued. God's promise is continuing. He's going to make a holy people out of Abraham's offspring. Joseph, the Jews taught that if you're in the right place, you're close to God. If you're in the right place, you're doing the right things. Joseph encountered jealousy from his brothers. They sold him, they betrayed him, and sold him to foreigners as a slave. And he was taken to Egypt Another faraway place. Stephen repeats this detail six times in seven verses. Egypt, Egypt. It's a country not their own. And to this religious council, it's not the right place in their mind, Egypt. They're familiar with this story of Joseph, and Stephen reminds them in verse 9. Please look at this with me. Chapter 7, verse 9. And the patriarchs, jealous of Joseph, sold him into Egypt, but God was with him. But God was with him. God was with Joseph while he was not in the right place. God was planning greater things. He wound up making Joseph ruler over all of Egypt. And he made him ruler over Egypt while a great famine came into the land. And Joseph was able to provide for his family who came to visit him from Israel. He saved them from starvation. 
And as Stephen recites the story of Joseph for these rulers, he includes an important detail in verse 13. And recall his introductory defense plea was, hear me, but in verse 13. And on the second visit, Joseph made himself known to his brothers. And Joseph's family became known to Pharaoh. The Jewish religious leaders did not recognize Jesus as Messiah during his first visit. He came then as a suffering servant. They're going to recognize him on the second visit, as will every human being. They'll see him as king, as ruler over all. Stephen is pleading with this council to see Jesus as Messiah. He's not using his defense time just to escape his own punishment. He's pointing to Joseph as a foreshadow of Jesus, while proving at the same time God's not confined to a place. He's with his people wherever they are. And that remains true today. Our God is not confined to a place. Wherever you are in life, whatever you're going through, however hard this past week has been, God is with you. Next in the Old Testament lesson is a summary of the life and ministry of Moses. So Stephen spends more time on Moses than the others, maybe because one of the particular charges was he's blaspheming against Moses. And one of the trumped-up charges was that he's blaspheming against Moses. And in the text of chapter 7, Stephen summarizes the life of Moses by three sets of 40 years. If you're a country music fan, you might be familiar with Tim McGraw's song, My Next 30 Years. And for Moses, it would be my next 40 years. In my next 40 years, I'll write the Ten Commandments. My next 40 years, I'll I'll lead my people out of captivity. If you're not a country music fan, there's still time for you. So, God is patient. When, when Moses was born, the Israelites were under Egyptian slavery. They're enduring hardship in a foreign land. And because the Israelites' birth rate was outpacing that of the Egyptians, Pharaoh ordered all Israelite infant males to be thrown in the Nile River. How cruel and awful is that? If it sounds familiar, remember shortly after the birth of Jesus, his parents fled to Egypt because King Herod had offered this, uh, ordered the same decree that Jewish infant males were to be put to death, genocide. But Moses' mother put him in the Nile at the age of three months, and she placed him in a special basket that would float. By God's divine providence, baby Moses was rescued from the Nile by Pharaoh's own daughter, which meant he grew up with nice things and received a great education. Stephen summarizes this part of Moses' life in verse 22. And Moses was instructed in all the wisdom of the Egyptians, and he was mighty in his words and deeds. The Egyptians were great educators. So God uses unusual and horrific circumstances at the time Moses was born to have him receive an education that would prepare him to lead his people. God gave Moses abilities to speak, the voice of a prophet, and act. His deeds were powerful, and it was on his heart yet to serve the Israelites. He knew where he came from. Verse 23, next 40 years. When he was 40 years old, it came to his heart to visit his brothers, the children of Israel. And we read part of this section today. He's aware that he's to deliver his people from their bondage in Egypt. So he travels back. He returns to Egypt where he expected the people to recognize why he's here. Oh, he's here to free us. And while he's in Egypt... A fellow Israelite is in a quarrel with a local guy, an Egyptian. Moses goes to defend him, and he winds up 
Moses wins the scrap. In fact, he takes the guy out, kills him. Instead of gratefulness for his defense, the Jews, the Israelites, reject him and say to him, Who made you ruler and judge? Oh, how often this is the posture of our hearts towards Jesus. Who made you ruler and judge? I'll decide what's best for me. We're not bent to wanting any rule or authority in our lives. And often we're, our posture is, I don't need a deliverer or rescuer. What Stephen is pointing out to the council is that the forefathers of Israel have rejected God's deliverer before. They did it with Moses when he defended the wrong man. The patriarchs did it with Joseph when they didn't recognize that he was sent for their deliverance. And the council that Stephen is talking to has rejected the promised deliverer of their souls by rejecting Jesus Christ. So back to Moses. He's, they're not accepting him as deliverer. He's murdered this man. He has to escape Egypt. But God's not through with Moses as he flees to Midian and he's present with him as he goes into that land, exiled for how many years? Forty years. Some of these timetables show the patience of God. Forty years is nothing to him. It's a lot to us. Near the end of the forty years, Moses has another encounter with God and his divine presence, the story of the burning bush. This time, Moses hears God audibly speaking to him with the declaration, I have come down to deliver them, and I will send you to Egypt. In verse 35 of our text, Stephen begins to summarize the second visit of Moses to Egypt, and you can almost sense a different tone in Stephen's voice. It's as if he's making the case for Christ here, a bit of righteous indignation is maybe growing. You know, when the charges were made in chapter or in verse 14 of chapter 6, they, they said it this way, For we have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and change the customs that Moses delivered to us. Maybe they said that charge in a dis, dismissive tone, this Jesus of Nazareth. So back to Stephen, you look at his his uh, plea here, verses 35 through 38, he starts using the word this. This Moses, this man, this is the Moses. Verse 38, this is the one. He's reminding the Sanhedrin that Israel rejected Moses, one who had sent by God to redeem and deliver their lives. Moses performed wonders and signs that were used to rescue these people. And Moses is the one God used to lead a group of people out of the wilderness after 40 years of wandering. Verse 38. I'm going to read that whole verse. This is the one who was in the congregation in the wilderness with the angel who spoke to him in Mount Sinai and with our fathers. And we the last part of the verse, he received living oracles to give to us. Moses received the Ten Commandments directly from God on the top of Mount Sinai. Those are the living oracles. It means the words of life. But our fathers refused to obey him. They thrust him aside and turned their hearts to Egypt. I think Stephen has clever use of his defense here. Stating our fathers, he reminds this Jewish council, I share your heritage. It's our family who did this to Moses. It's our family that has never obeyed. And it's us as a people that continually miss our deliverer and redeemer. Our forefathers weren't looking ahead when Moses delivered them. They weren't looking forward to the promise. They looked back. And then Stephen points it out at the end of verse 38. They turned their hearts to Egypt so much that they turned their backs on God right after they witness his glory appear 
on the countenance of Moses, where his face shone. He'd, verses 40-42 recall the story of the golden calf. The, the people of Israel turned to adultery, asking Aaron, who's the brother of Moses, take over leadership and make a god go before us. They melt gold, form it into an image of a calf, and worship it, rejoicing at the work of their hands. At the end of chapter 6, one of the trumped-up charges brought forth against Stephen was he says that this Jesus will destroy this place and change the customs that Moses delivered to us, these living oracles. Stephen, full of grace of power, with the Holy Spirit comforting him, as Jesus promised in Luke 12, he brilliantly gives a Sunday school lesson to these religious leaders here. He reminds them that their forefathers changed the customs soon after Moses delivered the law to them. They made and idolized a calf. And this phrase, and rejoiced in the work of their own hands, is especially meaningful. One of the accusations against Stephen was that he blasphemed the temple. And it wasn't that he spoke against the temple, but he's speaking against the way Israel worshipped the temple of God instead of worshipping the God of the temple. Just as Israel worshipped the calf in the wilderness, now they're worshipping the works of their hands in this temple. And he's also connecting the Jewish leaders' emphasis on the temple as being the only place to encounter God's presence. In addition to that idolatry, he reminds them of the story of the first temple being built at David's request. We studied that in Chronicles about six months ago, but the story in First and Second Chronicles and First Samuel of this first temple, God allowed it. He didn't ask for it, and he reminded them he didn't need a place built for him. Stephen quotes Isaiah 66, and it's here in our text. It's the indented part, verses 49 and 50. This is from Isaiah. Heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. What kind of house will you build for me, says the Lord? Or what is the place of my rest? Did not my hand make all these things? These religious leaders had set up a system and they found their fulfillment, their joy, their meaning in life. And what they had built to represent God and contain God, something made with their hands. It allows them to demonstrate, they feel like it allows them to demonstrate their righteousness. It gave them control over the people. And that's why all this dust up started. They felt like the Christians are coming along, we're going to lose control. We better put an end to this. It's a self-centered worship. The message of Christ is that he provides power. He demonstrated power over sickness, hunger, and death. His righteousness of a life lived without sin fulfilled the law that was given to the Jewish people through Moses. The God of the Bible is outside of space and time, so it's really ridiculous to think that four walls built by human hands could contain him. He created all and he sustains all. And he was with the Israelites when they were in the desert in Egypt and when they finally found the promised land. And he's with us at school, at work, here this morning at Blevins, and as we leave here to go on about our week wherever we travel. In Stephen's recount of Jewish history in this text, we learn their pattern of rebellion over and over but we see that God is a God of patience, slow to anger, willing to forgive. This nation has resisted his grace time and time again. And then it gets a bit sobering. Stephen reminds this court and everyone attending this trial and hearing this, there's an end to God's patience. Verse 41, the people led by Aaron, or they're rejoicing at the work of their hands at this golden calf. But let's look at verse 42. But God turned away and gave them over to worship the host of heaven, as it is written in the book of prophets. 
What is this verse teaching us? It's teaching us that you can resist the power of the Holy Spirit too long. This is God saying to them in verse 42, You don't want me or the grace I'm offering? You can worship the host of heaven. You can have your false god. And the host of heaven in their sense, while they're living in Egypt, they're worshiping a Canaanite sun god was one of the things they contended with. And the planet Saturn. Those, those are what they're worshiping. God had enough of that idolatry, and he sent them into exile. The gospel call is available to every human being while we're alive. And the call is to offer into God's rest by way of his son, Jesus Christ. The rest from our own self-righteousness the rest from rejoicing at the work of our hands, and that can take on many forms. It might be from your job. It could be from hobbies. could be from your family. The call is to worship Jesus as supreme, as the only one worthy of our worship, and to see other things, these, the works, our work, hobby, family. Those are good gifts from God, but they're not supreme. And the call is to exchange our sin for his perfect fulfillment of the law. And, and we're asked, don't put it off. We're pleaded with in Romans, today is the day of salvation. And there is a too late in responding to God's message of salvation by grace. And Christian friends, there's a too late in the telling of God's plan of salvation to our friends and loved ones. Stephen is on trial for proclaiming that Jesus is Messiah, and he had the option of appeasing this council. Instead, he made the most of his opportunity in this courtroom. He reminded this council and everyone listening, you're repeating what the forefathers have done over and over. You're growing deaf ears to the message of salvation. They were missing that God had indeed fulfilled his promise and sent their spiritual deliverer in the person of Jesus Christ. Stephen, full of grace and power, didn't wait to tell the high court and whoever was there that day about the Messiah. He closes in verses 51, 53, and he doesn't pull any punches. I'm going to read these verses. You stiff-necked people uncircumcised in hearts and ears, you always resist the Holy Spirit. As your fathers did, so do you. Which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? And they killed those who announced beforehand the coming of the righteous one, whom you have now betrayed and murdered. You who received the laws delivered by angels and did not keep it. Stephen's using phrases from the Old Testament as he makes a last plea, not for his innocence, but for their salvation. Stiff neck, we would know it as the word stubborn. It's used by Moses and the prophets. There he goes again, pulling Moses into the story. They're going to know Moses' background. That term's used by Moses and the prophets to to describe the posture of unbelieving Israel's heart. In uncircumcised hearts, that was also commonly used by the prophets and Moses. It describes those who turn a deaf ear to the message of salvation. And then the most alarming charge is verse 51. You always resist the Holy Spirit. Stephen's defense was, or Stephen's speech was not a self-defense that we would have expected in this courtroom. It was a testimony to Christ. And with the glory of God reflecting on his face as the accuser stared at him with hostility, he tells them how Jesus is the Messiah who came to replace the temple and fulfilled the law. And he's not pleading for his innocence, he's pleading for their life. Remember, he's on trial for a capital offense, punishment by death. 
But he's pleading for everyone in that courtroom's life, is what he's doing. While teaching the Old Testament scriptures we're pointing to, he proves his innocence. Each of us stand guilty of sin before a righteous God, and the wages of sin are death. We're told in Romans 6.23, it's a capital offense. And the charges are not trumped up. But God took action for us. Jesus took on God's wrath and died in our place. He was pleading for our innocence with his own life. The second half of Romans 6.23 says this, But the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. I'm going to ask the worship team to make their way back to the stage and lead us. And as they proceed, I want to close with a couple of thoughts. If you're hearing this message today today, and you've yet to believe Jesus is Messiah and that he's the only way, the only hope to restore a broken relationship with a holy God, there's still time. God is displaying patience each time you hear the gospel message. And if you want to know more about this, during the next couple of songs, we'll have people that will speak to you over here in the corner. And you can join them during the song. Don't, don't be shy. Uh, fellow followers of Jesus, let's let the courage and the concern for others that Stephen displayed be a model for us. We have a, an opportunity to share the gospel. Let's do so with the grace and empowerment knowing the Holy Spirit is with us, and we get to share the story of the righteous one. So we're encouraged from this to stay faithful in our study of Scripture and let that knowledge prepare our hearts when our faith is asked about and when our faith is on trial. So at the end of every courtroom scene, what do we usually have? We have a verdict. And if you want to hear the verdict for this courtroom scene, you're going to have to tune in next week. Same axe time, same axe location.